you could have more fulfillment and ease in your professional and personal life and still be ambitious. Join me, Kathy Onetto, founder of Sustainable Ambition, for conversations with experts, authors, and friends on what it means to live with sustainable ambition. Learn concepts, tips, and tools to craft a fulfilling career on your terms while still being ambitious and avoiding burnout. For show notes from this episode, visit sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Now, let's learn more to help you craft your career to support your life from decade to decade. On to today's conversation. Welcome back, everyone. I am so excited to be joined today by Dory Clark, someone I've admired for a long time since I read her first book back in 2012 and who has been a guide to me from afar uh, over the years through her content and books through which she generously shares her knowledge, expertise, and wisdom. And today we're going to be speaking about her latest book, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World, which I think holds so much wisdom, especially for those seeking sustainable ambition. So Dory, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here with me today. Thank you so much for being on with me. Kathy, it's great to talk with you. So before we get started, let me first properly introduce you to Dory. Dory Clark helps individuals and companies get their best ideas heard in a crowdy, noisy world. She has been named one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50 and was honored as the number one communication coach in the world at the Marshall Goldsmith Coaching Awards. She is a keynote speaker and teaches for Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and Columbia Business School. She is the author of Entrepreneurial You, which was named one of Forbes' top five business books of the year, as well as Reinventing You and Stand Out, which was named the number one leadership book of the year by Inc. Magazine. She is a former presidential campaign spokeswoman and has been described by the New York Times as an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives. She is a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review and consults and speaks for clients such as Google, Yale University, and the World Bank. She is a graduate of the Harvard Divinity School, a producer of a multiple Grammy-winning jazz album, and a Broadway investor. So obviously, very accomplished story and also multi-talented, which I hope to get back to uh, at the end is with a question. But um, to start, I, I wondered if you could share with us when along your own career and business building journey, did you really have this epiphany about the concept of the long game and its power? Well, I've always tried to be a long-term thinker. Uh, I think most of us realize or acknowledge like, yeah, that's a good thing to do, <laughs> but it's not always easy to do. And that gap is part of the reason that I wrote The Long Game was hopefully to think, think those ideas through and to create a framework that could help other people reorient in some ways. Because you know, I know from my own experience and certainly um, from running the recognized expert community, course and community, which you're part of, I've seen a lot of folks and it's just so hard and so common because inevitably there is a gap. Some Sometimes, you know, a chunk of time between us setting an intention of where we want to go and us actually reaching that place because the most meaningful goals usually do take a while. It usually does take longer than we want it to. And it can be 
a little dispiriting when you're halfway through and you don't know if you're halfway through, you're like, okay, is this going to go on for like 80 more years? Like where, where am I in this maze? And that's the point where a lot of talented people, unfortunately give up. And I wanted to hopefully create a, a way that, that people could stay encouraged and stay motivated along the process so that the best ideas really can be heard and we can get to the other side successfully so that so that people can get the success that they want and that they deserve. Well, one of the things you say in the book that I really love, Dory, is you say, quote, this book is intended for professionals who want something more out of their lives and work and who are willing to take the harder path to get there. So it's interesting because you all, you said it's the harder path. And yet, as I stepped back, paradoxically to me, this concept of the long game also seems to be empowering and freeing in some way. Is there some truth to that to you? Yeah, I think that's a really good observation, Kathy. It's, It's true because a lot of people, I think, just put way too much pressure on themselves also. You know, I... One of the exercises in our uh, recognized expert group is to have people come up with sort of a draft of their breakthrough idea. And, you know, it's really meant to be a draft, like it's an iterative process. But, you know, we're encouraging people to try to articulate uh, what it is in general is is on their minds. Like what, what are they what are they sort of circling around? And for a lot of people, this causes so much angst because they're like, I don't know, you know, bang head, bang head, bang head, like what's wrong with me? And I always try to reassure people, it's okay, it's okay. This this is really about just you living your way into understanding what your breakthrough idea is. You're not going to get it by sitting at your desk for, you know, 72 hours and, you know, not going to the bathroom and, you know, just like, like chaining yourself there. Um, This is something that you can only really come to through experience and through conversations and through trying different things out. And if you don't have it right now, don't like attack yourself for being inadequate it it will come and similarly of course during during covid there are so many people that just you know were not able to quite get done what they wanted to get done and i really try to encourage people like don't don't be angry at yourself like you're doing the best you can do now later you can over index and you can get back to things you know it's not like oh yeah be indolent forever but when when there are obligations when there's caregiving when there's you know like the risk of the world turning into zombies it's okay to take a step back and be like wow that was challenging maybe i focused on other things then yeah and it sounds like what you're describing too like in terms of this idea for example in the recognized expert community this sense of people searching for their idea or being inexperienced to uncover it, that to me seems like it has a lot of application to people finding their career path too, or this journey of a career path. It's kind of, you talk about uh, 
I, I kind of talk about this idea of passion. I don't really like the advice of like, find your passion just for so many reasons. Um, and one, I think people can get into this passion paralysis where it's like, where is it? Where is it? And they never land or a passion paradox where they're like, well, this is my passion. I made it my work and now it's not my passion anymore. And so, you know, you talk about this idea of instead going for looking for things that are interesting or what's, you know, solve for interesting. I'm forgetting the exact optimizing for interesting. There it is. Um, so is there, do you see this in terms of um, this idea of experience, like living into the experience of things being applicable also in this idea of like managing one's career over time? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Kathy. And it's, that's exactly right. You finding your passion is absolutely an area where people are extremely hard on themselves. They, if in our society, it is such a valorized concept to follow your passion that if you were someone who, you know, God forbid, doesn't have a passion or doesn't know what your passion is, a lot of times people feel very inadequate about that. And you're right, they can feel paralyzed. Like, wow, I guess I can't literally do anything with my life until I discover my passion. And so like, what do you do then? You just like sit around, like somehow, you know, waiting for the apple to fall on your head. Like that's, that's not the right move. So I like when in doubt, I am a fan of lowering the bar because oftentimes it's not to say you have low standards, but you have low standards at the start so you can get started. One of the people that I quote in the long game is a guy named BJ Fogg, who's a Stanford professor. And his advice, uh, he's he's this you know habits expert. And when he was trying to get himself into the habit of flossing his teeth, his strategy was floss one tooth. And it's just, it's so easy that you, you feel like, an, you know, like a moron if you're not flossing one tooth. But then, eh, you know what? If you floss one tooth, it's actually not that hard to keep flossing and floss two or three or five or 10. So I, I think having a low bar where it's like, what's interesting in the long game, you're exactly right. I talk about the concept of optimized for interesting because you might not know what your passion is, but for sure, you know, what's interesting or what's not interesting to you. So, you know, do more of what's interesting. Yeah. I love that. Um, one of the things I wanted to come back to too, was this idea of courage. It comes up a lot on this podcast in this idea of either people who might take a non-traditional path or uh, for their life and or career. And you also say that it takes courage to be a long-term thinker. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about why that might be the case. Yeah. So in the long game, I actually begin the book with some stories about my friend, Martin Lindstrom, who's a branding consultant, and he has worked with all the top companies, you know, he's a very successful New York Times bestselling author and branding consultant. And he raised a point with me a while ago that really stayed with me, which is, he says, in all of the years he's been doing branding, he says, literally, he has never encountered a CEO that is opposed to the idea of equality or opposed to, you know, some of the things that are controversial social issues of our time. But he said, you know, that's that's not the issue. It's not like ideology. It's that they are rewarded on such a short term basis with regard to quarterly earnings that anything that they might do that might disrupt the the share price of their stock, 
means that they would incur a loss of bonuses. They would incur the wrath of their board. Uh, every, you know, everybody in the market is focused on these short-term results. And so even if something is better for the company in the long term, you know, we talk about being on the right side of history, uh, in the short term, there might be consequences. And that often makes them very cherry. Yeah. And so it doesn't make them they don't have the courage to kind of take that long view and go ahead and step out and, like you're saying, do the right thing in that situation. And it sounds like we're in a similar we can often get caught in a similar kind of uh, limiting belief in terms of kind of stepping out to do something that might be a little bit more courageous to help us meet our goals. We we kind of, you know, for example, even with a career, well, I can't take a short term income hit right? To step out and go on a separate path, say. Yeah, that's a perfect analogy. And in fact, for the flip side of that equation, um, I end the book with a story about Jeff Bezos and Amazon. And a decade ago, he was doing an interview with Wired Magazine. And of course, Amazon is now, you know, a lot more successful than it was even a decade ago. And he was opining about what he thought Amazon's secret sauce was. Why was it that it had done so well compared to its competitors? And what he said is, most of my competitors are only willing to plan on a three-year time frame. That's that's the, the furthest out they can imagine. That's the furthest out they're willing to think about. And he said, Amazon plans on a seven-year time frame. And that makes everything different because, you know, first of all, of course, it means that you have to be willing to endure more short-term losses because things take a while to get profitable. But it also means that you can create bigger projects, more potentially uh, dramatic or game-changing projects because those are the kind that take seven years to develop. And so now, these years later, we see what has become of Amazon Prime. We see what has become of things like Amazon Web Services that have ensured the profitability and the long-term moat that Amazon has built for itself. And that's what we can do with our own careers. I mean, that's really the goal of of the long game, which I'll wave my copy right here. Uh, The goal is to help people really understand how to apply the principles of strategic thinking to their own lives and their own careers. Yeah, I love it. By the way, I'm anxiously awaiting my copy to arrive on September 21st story. So it's pre-ordered and on its way. Um, You know, around this idea of like the long game and planning or this long-term thinking in the Amazon, like I'm a planner. I like to have a vision and set this longer term goal. And even part of what I'm doing now is really like taking a long game approach and your counsel, by the way, in, in through Rex and other things that like things take time is it, it's it helps me a ton to take the pressure off to remind myself that this is a journey. And I like this idea of like having a vision and yet holding it loosely. And yet many people think you shouldn't look too far out or that, well, I, I worked my plan and now I'm not happy. So I don't want to believe in a plan at all. So how do you think about that for those that are like, hey, I just want to look a year out or I don't want to really kind of have this longer term plan because I don't know what that really looks like. Well, my my rejoinder to that is that it's Actually, I think incredibly liberating to have a super long-term plan, which I'll call, you know, 10-year plan, 20-year plan, because you don't need to know how you will achieve it. So also, I mean, it's 10 years away, right? If you change, 
kind of who cares, right? <laughs> like the point, <laughs> the whole point is to be directionally correct. Because if you are not optimizing for anything, if you are not heading in any particular direction, then, you know, t- 10 years from now, you might be closer to some future that you want. You might not. Like, eh, who knows? Whereas if you have at least a hypothesis that you're driving toward, there is no law that you cannot change it if something better comes along. There is no regulation that says you have to stick to it if you decide that, that you know, you'd prefer something else or actually your calculations weren't right or whatever. It's fine. But all it means is that because you have been a little bit proactive and a little bit intentional about aiming where you are, it probably means you're more likely to end up in that general direction. You know, if you tell me, Kathy, I want to be in Hollywood, I want to be a Hollywood director. Well, okay, great. We don't need to, I mean, we don't necessarily need to have it all figured out, right? Maybe, you know, we get seven years down the road and you're like, I was all wrong. I'm going to be a producer. Well, you know what? If you have been optimizing toward being a director and then suddenly you change, I guarantee it will still be easier for you to end up being a producer because over the past seven years between now and then, you will have been meeting with people, making connections, reading books, having conversations. Um, You will be probably creating independent projects. You might have moved to Los Angeles. You will have done all the right things. And then it becomes a lot easier to pivot in the moment for that final mile. Yeah, love that. Very makes a ton of sense to me. And I think, again, with this idea of sustainable ambition is very, very applicable. One of the things I wanted to come back to is where you actually start in the book, which is um, related to kind of getting out of our crazy busy, I kind of say. And one of the things I hear a lot from people I coach or from even friends is this reframe of like, oh, I just don't know what I want. And as I said, you start the book with this, you know, you need to start creating some play, some space and you say clearing the decks so that you have time to think and take a long-term view. So I want to, I was wondering is, is part of this to carve out space to hear ourselves and kind of tune into what we want to focus on and what is important for each of us? For sure. That's a, a big part of it. I mean, the, the reason that I start the long game with a section about white space is, you know, it's not that it takes huge amounts of time to do strategic thinking. No one has huge amounts of time anyway. Like it's, it's, you know, it's okay. It's not like everybody has to go on, on a sabbatical or a retreat, but it is equally true that you can't do strategic thinking with no time. And for most professionals, that's actually the condition that we're operating under is like, no, there's no time. <laughs> and, you know, they, they like get like a, you know, they're possessed or something when they uh, respond. You, you have to have the scary voice. And <laughs> somehow we have to break out of that so that there's at least enough room that people can get perspective and start to make rational choices. Because if you were heads down all the time, if you were buried in the present moment, just trying to execute, you never really ask the question, well, am I executing on the right things? And, you know, it might be fine for a day or a week, but over time that builds up and you might end up discovering that you have been optimizing for the wrong things. You've you've been driving toward a destination that is not, in fact, where you want to end up, which is not the situation I think any of us wants. 
Yeah, which makes a lot of sense. And it's so true that today, I mean, people even operating within business say this all the time, which is I have no time to think. And really, companies should be quite frightened by hearing their executives or anybody within their organization say that. Like, if anything, to your point, if you if you just apply exactly what you just said, people are actually like executing, but you may not, you're never looking up to make sure are we actually heading in the right direction still. And the world just moves way too quickly today to really, you know, to afford to be, to do that, frankly. So yeah. Um, the next thing you talk about is really where to focus. So part of what you just said is what well, we'll make the time for that, but you know, to get clear, but my shorthand for this section, Dory, it may be way overly simplistic, but is, to really be strategic about what you do and how you spend your time. And that if we want to achieve our goals, we, we really not shouldn't just take the long view, but be really deliberate about where we focus our attention and be protective of and strategic with the use of our time. Is that is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a bit of a paradox because when we start out, you know, nobody wants to meet with us. Nobody has any idea who we are. Nobody cares. <laughs> and so, and so all you're doing, you know, desperately is, is like, well, talk to me, pick me. I could do it. I could go to that meeting, please. It's it's like, I remember when I was an intern and it was just the most exciting thing in the world when I, when you get picked to be like, oh my God, I got to go along to the meeting, you know? And then you get to be a grown up, and you're like, oh my God, I would pay you a hundred dollars if I didn't have to go to this meeting. <laughs> and, and so we need to shift our strategy because in the early days, it's all about, you know, oh, can I get in on this? Oh, you know, you're doing, you're doing everything. You're doing anything because it's all good. You, you have, you know, nobody wants to talk to you and you have no preferences because you have just no idea. But as you get more successful, the demands on your time increase and, the trick, if you want to be successful, rather than having uh, just everybody else drive your agenda, is you need to enact your vision. And the only way you can do it is actually by getting really disciplined about fending off other people's vision for you and how you're going to spend your time. This, to me, is such an important concept. And I think one that I, I'm going to admit I even struggle with around setting boundaries and where you're going to essentially, again, focus your attention and focus your time. And so this idea of making sure that it's your vision for, for where you want to, you know, because again, people will schedule your time for you if you allow them to, right? So I, I appreciate this focus on take control and make sure that where you're spending your time is aligned with that vision of, of what's important to you. Absolutely. And and that's why in the long game, I even have a section, which I call saying no, even to good things, because, you know, this is the crazy part. This is the hard part. Most professionals, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not easy to say no sometimes, but, but most of us, when push comes to shove, if it's a bad offer, we will, we will somehow summon the will to say no to that. But the problem is what if something actually is a pretty good offer, but it's just not aligned with where we want to be going or what we want to be doing. That is really hard. It's really complicated. And a lot of us fall prey to it, frankly, because we're like, oh, but it's so good. Oh, it's, you know, it's so compelling. So my mother was here 
uh, last week and I have this whole closet full of stuff that I'm trying to like, you know, get rid of, and I'm going to bring it to goodwill because I live in New York and you have to be like super vigilant about getting things out of your apartment. And my mom kept going through it and everything that was in my goodwill pile. She's like, but this is so nice. It's just so high quality. And you know, it's expensive. And I'm like, yes, mama, I know, but I don't use it. And I will literally never use it. Therefore it is not relevant if it is nice. I know it's nice, but it's not for me. And that is exactly the same thing about the offers that we get, you know, Oh, Kathy, will you accept this job? Well, it's, Oh, it's a high paying job. It's very prestigious, but you know what, if it's not the thing you actually want to do, then it's taking you away from your goal rather than bringing you closer. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. It's a super helpful section of the book, I think, um, that people can find really useful in guiding them to make these different choices that they are presented with. And you, in in your last, prior to that one response, you were talking about this kind of like earlier in one's career versus later in one's career. And I wanted to come back to this because to me, the long game, as I've mentioned, it's really a powerful concept and has, to me, direct application to sustainable ambition in terms of how one can really manage their careers from decade to decade. And I was curious if you'd have some thoughts on this, this idea of, you know, how should one think about playing the long game if they are earlier in their career versus perhaps if they're in the middle or later stages, say? Yeah, well, I think regardless of of where you are, a, a general principle that I am a really big fan of when it comes to our careers is you can make the larger transitions based on the length of your runway. So I have, and let me define what I mean by this. So I wrote a piece a while ago for the Harvard Business Review about career change after 50. My first book was called Reinventing You. And so I talk a lot about career change issues. And I would often get people, you know, writing in or, or whatever, asking questions. And they'll basically say, you know, well, I don't, you know, everything you said makes sense, but not for me. I'm over 50. And I'm like, no, like, you don't need, you need to shake people. Like you can still do things. You can still change careers. You can, you know, you can still do a thing. And I think the, the only key, the only difference is If you, so the bigger the change that you're trying to make, the more you need to understand that it is difficult to start at the same level. That's, that's the issue, right? Like if you're, if you're making a pretty small or subtle change, then you can probably parachute in where you need to go. If it's a really dramatic change, odds are, unless you have a really good friend who is the hiring manager and trusts you implicitly and is like, well, Kathy can do anything, then they might be a little skeptical. And so you might need to start at a lower level just to prove your aptitude. Although you often, because you are very qualified, can move up quickly. And so that often correlates with salary things. So, you know, if you're 55 and you're like, you know, I need a new challenge, I want to try something else, you know, go for it. Yeah, absolutely. Just, and and if money is not the operative factor, then you can literally do whatever you want. The challenge comes when you're 55 and you say, well, I'm earning $400,000 now and I want to do something radically different and also make $400,000. Like, well, you know, it might take a little while to get to that. Um, But Obviously, if you're younger, you do have much more runway. Uh, and so the, the key thing 
at whatever age, whether you're 30, whether you're 55, what have you, is the way that you can build runway, buy runway for yourself, is to be thoughtful about cultivating your off time and your nights and weekends, because that's actually how you can get a lot of the experience that you need, which enables you to saunter into the next career that you want to have. So I'm, I'm a, I did this all wrong. You know, when I started my own business, I finished up the job that I had, which was running a nonprofit. And then once, once I left, I was like, gosh, I wonder how I'm going to get clients, which is a dumb thing to do. That's ridiculous. You should start getting clients as soon as you think about it. You know, I mean, obviously we're, you know, assuming there's not like some kind of a non-compete or, or whatever with your existing company, but to the greatest extent possible, you want to stress test your ideas. You want to practice, even if there's no money involved, you can be getting testimonials, you can be getting case studies, you can be getting referrals at first, and that can help you grow your business so that you can transition into whatever you want to do and actually have really good experience uh, and be credible. Yeah, really wise advice. And I, I feel like this relates story to what you talk about in terms of 20% time and experimentation that you talk about in the book. And what was interesting about this for me, it's not like I don't know about Google's 20% time and kind of haven't had it brought up in other like situations, but how to me, how you talked about it in the book really resonated and applied to exactly how you're talking about it here. Because to, to make another concept, many people I've talked to on the podcast when they talk about, when I ask, like, what would you give advice to your 20-year-old self? Or what would, advice would you give to somebody early in their career? They say, take more risk. And what I thought was interesting as I was reading the book that kind of came to me was that, well, really, if you took this 20% concept, it kind of evens out that risk-taking, if you will. It kind of says, actually, at, to your point, if you're a little bit further along in your career, there is a way to take a little bit more risk by using this experimentation, by carving out 20% time to kind of test out what your next path is. And my sense is that people kind of tend to be resistant to potentially doing that, or they don't realize that maybe that's an option for them, that they could do that to test their way into what's next. Um, I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Well, I think it's, it's really true, Kathy. I mean, people it just have this epidemic of black and white thinking, which I think kind of ties in with short-term thinking in, in a lot of ways. And it is, of course, as humans, it's natural to kind of devolve into that when we're not mindful, but we need to guard against it. We need to be thoughtful about what that, what that looks like and realizing, you know, my, my friend, Laura Vanderkam is a time management and productivity expert. And she you know, makes a really great point, which I, I think relates to this. Uh, and in, in her case, she's talking about, you know, people who say, oh, well, I don't have time to work out. And she's like, okay, well, why don't you have time to work out? Oh, well, I have to, you know, I have to get home to the kids or, oh, but I have early meetings or whatever. And she said, okay, well, what if, what if you went um, one day a week and you could have your spouse feed the kids dinner. 
Like, could you do that? They're like, well, I guess one day a week. Yeah, I guess I could do that. Well, okay. How about another day that week? You could actually go at lunchtime uh, if you have the early meeting. She said, well, I guess I could do that. And, you know, she talks them through it. And like, they've suddenly got three, four pockets of time that they can absolutely use to work out. But it's just so much simpler to say, well, that's not possible because I can't do it at precisely 6 p.m. every day. And we just make all these excuses. And I think it's very much like that when it comes to career planning or career change. Um, a lot of people say, well, I can't do it because I have a mortgage. Well, okay, a lot of people do. <laughs> and, you know, we get it. Uh, but the problem is that the thinking is often like, well, if I'm going to make some kind of a change, obviously that means I need to precipitously quit my job and therefore have no income, which no one is saying is a good idea. That's a terrible idea. What you should do is test things, use your 20% time, experiment, and then you can you can make an easy transition. In my first book, Reinventing You, I tell the story of a, a woman right by you in San Francisco, Kathy, uh, named uh, Patricia Fripp. And she started her career as a hairdresser. And she transitioned into one of the nation's most prominent uh, professional speakers, which, you know, is not the most logical leap in the world for a hairdresser, but she did it because she had a 10-year lease on her salon. And she used that time in the early days, she just spoke for free, like everybody, to get exposure and get practice. And eventually she got paid the little bit of money, not enough to support herself, but she would use that money to invest in her business. And, you know, okay, this check goes to the new website. This check goes to the new speaker video, whatever it is. And she builds up her practice. And at the end of 10 years, she walks away. She can walk away from her hair salon because no worries. She's making more than she ever made as a hairdresser, as a public speaker. But it's because she was methodical about getting the skills she needed, reinvesting in her business and never putting herself or her family finances in danger. And I think I think a lot of us can do it. A lot more of us can do it than we might imagine. Yeah, I think that's true. And you give so many examples in many of your books where, where this is the case. And one of the things I really wanted to make sure we we touched on too in this concept of the long game, you talk about strategic patience. And yet I was also curious, how do you think about sunk cost in the context of playing the long game? Like, when do you know when to throw in the towel or to be like, okay, this isn't working? Or is it, no, it, it's going to take 10 years, Kathy. So just keep on going, ha have the faith, be one of the few that holds on. Um, so how do you think about that? Well, my, one of my favorite antidotes to sunk costs is actually just making sure, and so many people don't do this, but making sure either at the outset or as close to the outset as you possibly can, that you actually really do understand what is likely in terms of the time frame, because it's not necessarily so bad or so terrible to run a marathon, right? Like a lot of people run marathons. This is a thing they do, even though it's hard. What is terrible, I will tell you, is thinking you're running a half marathon, you're at mile 12.9, and then they're like, psych, it's actually a marathon. And you have to go 13 more miles and you want to kill somebody. That is bad. So having an accurate sense up front of what you're actually signing up for is so important in terms of being able to calibrate things, 
and just, you know, understand your expectations so that you can feel good about the process and not feel terrible that, you know, why, why God, why am I not making any progress? And it's like, well, no one, no one does actually. That's why you're not making progress is that, you know, at month eight, uh, nothing happens because you need to wait until month 14 or, you know, whatever it is. So I, I think that that is one of the best strategies that we can explore. Mm, I appreciate that. Yes. It's kind of, it. I'll just throw into like, I've run marathons before and I kind of say that I think anybody, assuming your body will let you, right? Like you don't have any major, like as long as you do the training, you can do it, you know? So it's really just also doing the work as you talk about too, knowing what those, and even that example of you gave of Patricia, the hairdresser, she did the work to get herself there. So both knowing how long it might take and then being methodical about it um, can help you get to that end game. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Well, one of the, the final things I wanted to ask you before we start to wrap up is um, more personal, Dory. One of the things I really admire about you is that you are a multi-passionate person and that you embrace it and you don't tell others like me. I actually asked a question around this in one of my first recognized expert uh, webinars. You know, you don't you didn't say like narrow it down, Kathy, focus. You can't do it all or have multi multiple things you're doing. And, you know, you're a Broadway investor. I think you said you were doing stand up comedy at one point. You produced a Grammy winning jazz album. I think you I saw uh, somewhere maybe on your Instagram that you were learning to play ping pong. Uh, yeah. How do you get all this in and kind of what fuels this kind of uh, desire to kind of like really kind of honor these different interests that you have? Well, for me, and I'd, I'd be curious, Kathy, how you view it as well, but I will say that part of it is just keeping myself interested because, you know, I get bored. I like to, I like to do all kinds of things. So, you know, it, life is no fun if you're not entertained. Uh, so that's part of it. I think that also uh, part of it really is my own desire to operationalize the principle that I talk about in the long game about, about having 20% time. I think it is really true that we need to walk the talk about learning new skills and developing things. And it, and when we see learning new skills, it doesn't always have to be quote unquote, super serious, right? I'm not saying like, oh, everybody needs to learn artificial intelligence. Like that's what you need to do with your 20% time. Like, well, I'm sure that would be helpful, but like, if that's not a thing that you're actually Actually interested in fine do ping pong like you know there's there's a lot of different ways that we can develop ourselves sometimes it's developing our reflexes who knows you know who knows what's coming down the pike i mean you know this year it's covid next year it could be aliens you know maybe it's the people who have ping pong skills that are going to be the ones that can defeat the aliens we don't know so whatever it is like just go do it learn it and it's going to come in handy somehow. So yeah, I try to max it out. Yeah, I love that. And I, for me, you talk about this in the long game as well. It's, you know, follow your curiosity. Like, and what I hear you saying is, and indulge in it. You know, I think to your point, people often see things as black and white and don't all often make time for those things. Even something like, 
you know, you might say, well, I'm not coordinated, so I'm not going to try to play ping pong or <laughs> whatever it might be. Um, you know, or I, I've never played an instrument. So why should I get involved in, you know, trying to be a part of an album, you know, a jazz album? So uh, and I appreciate that you're saying really anything might feed our skills, building of our skill sets. And, and we might not always know where that's going to um, have a final application. So um, I really appreciate that. So um, I, this has been a fabulous conversation, Dory. Thank you so much for taking time with us today. Um, I would love to just end with a final piece of advice that you might have for people to help them achieve sustainable ambition. Well, one of the concepts that I talk about in the long game that I think might be relevant here is what I call thinking in waves and recognizing that throughout our career, there are and there there should be, there need to be different waves um, where I see actually a lot of professionals get into trouble is they just they do a thing and then they just keep doing that thing. And the trick is, if we want to have a successful long term career, you sort of need to learn to do different things and shift accordingly. And so the the four waves that I identified, um, the first is learning, which I mean, of course, of course, we learn all throughout our careers. That's, you know, that's a thing. But you're going to over index on learning when you're first starting in a job or you're first starting in your career like that. That's kind of like your whole deal is figuring out what's happening. And then you need to shift because it's time to create and sort of share your own view. You need to start once you've learned stuff, you need to start speaking up, letting people know your ideas, how you think about things. You also, at a certain point, need to shift into connecting mode because those ideas are not going to do anybody any good if you don't if you don't have allies, if you don't have people around you that support you and say, oh, well, actually, that's a pretty good idea, Kathy. Let's get together and you know try that. Let's make that happen. You want people who can back you up and help you amplify those ideas. Uh, then we get to reaping, which is where you finally get to enjoy uh, the fruits of your labor, which is wonderful. But the trick is you can't end there. Too many people end prematurely and they coast and they get bored and they stagnate. And that's when it's time to flip around to learning again so we can stay fresh. And I think if we can do that, to me, that is that is one major element of a sustainably ambitious career. Mm, love that. Thank you for sharing that. And I'll encourage everyone to please go and get Dory's book. It comes out on September 21st, but is on pre-order now. So don't wait. Um, Dory, where can people find you? And I know you have a, a, a self-assessment people can get. Where should they go to find that? Yeah, thank you so much, Kathy. Uh, there is, in fact, a long game strategic thinking self-assessment, which folks can get for free. And it really helps walk you through the process of how to apply the principles of strategic thinking to your own life and your own career. And folks can get it at doryclark.com slash the long game. Wonderful. And I, of course, will capture that in the show notes. Dory, again, I'm so grateful you spent time with me today and are sharing all this wisdom with my listeners and with others out in the world. So it's really been an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kathy. Great talking with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sustainable Ambition Podcast. I hope you take away at least one learning or inspiration from today's conversation. Find more inspiring interviews and get show notes for this episode at sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools 
by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice monthly newsletter. Sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. And remember, it's not about finding work-life balance. It's about building work-life resilience. Thanks again for joining me. Speak with you next time.